In movies, the dinner party gone wrong is a classic scenario, the source of cutting humor and high drama. Now, a dinner party like no other is unfolding on stage at the Met. Today on the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast, The Exterminating Angel. The Metropolitan Opera Guild is dedicated to enriching people's lives through an awareness and deeper appreciation of opera. Our podcast features lectures and events presented by the Guild in support of performances at the Metropolitan Opera. The Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast is funded in part by support from the Stuart J. Pierce Memorial Fund. To learn more, visit metguild.org. I'm Naomi Baratera. The Exterminating Angel, the audacious new opera by Thomas Addis, comes with a glittering cast, a sumptuous score, and a side of surrealism. It's based on the classic 1962 film by Luis Bunuel about a dinner party whose guests are unable to leave. After winning glowing reviews in Salzburg and Covent Garden, the opera is having its American premiere at the Met. Works in process at the Guggenheim recently invited the opera's creators and a few cast members to give a preview. Metropolitan Opera General Manager Peter Gelb led the discussion. Thank you all for joining us. With me on stage are the prodigious creators of The Exterminating Angel, the composer Tom Addis, and the librettist and stage director Tom Cairns. Tom Addis, of course, is one of our most gifted composers whose first opera, Powder Her Face, based on a true life British sex scandal, created a sensation when it was premiered when he was all of 24 years old. His second opera, which was an adaptation of Shakespeare's The Tempest, was enthusiastically received at its premiere at the Met in 2012. His operas have appeared on the leading stages, including in the case of The Exterminating Angel, the Salzburg Festival, and the Royal Opera House. And his symphonic and chamber works have been performed by the world's foremost orchestras and chamber ensembles. He's also an an excellent conductor who will be leading the performances of the Exterminating Angel at the Met, as he did in the case of The Tempest when he made his Metropolitan Opera conducting debut back in 2012. Tom Cairns is a gifted director of theater, film, and opera, as well as being a very talented librettist. His staged works have appeared throughout the world. He first collaborated with Tom Addis on The Tempest, staging the original production as world premiere at Covent Garden in 2004. They obviously hit it off. (laughs) Since uh, with The Exterminating Angel, Tom is working in the dual capacity of not only stage director, but also co-librettist. This will be his, Tom Cairns, Metropolitan Opera debut. So... Tom Addis's operatic adaptation of Louis Bunuel's now classic film depicts a dinner party that might seem to have arised in hell. And the story, just to give you a, a quick, a very quick synopsis, is after a performance of Donizetti's Lucia de Lammermoor, an upper crust group is invited to the mansion of Lucia and Edmundo di Nobile for a post-opera supper. Meanwhile, as the guests are arriving, the servants are inexplicably fleeing. The guests soon discover that they are psychologically and physically incapable of leaving. Eventually, they run out of food and water and descend into depths of chaos and various other states of depravity. That's the story. (laughs) (laughs) So, 
But you'll hear some elaborations on that. I should start with you, Tom Addis. So from sex scandal to uh, Shakespeare to a surrealist dinner party, no one can accuse you of having a one-track mind when it, when it comes to choosing your subjects of operas. What attracted you to the uh, Boonwell film in the first place? Well, um, there was no other possible subject for me. I, I just, it just uh, had to be, I had to do it. I, I mean, at the time, to me, it felt like almost uh, offspring of my first opera and my second opera in the sense that um, it's quite similar to the Tempest plot if you abstract it a little in that they are shipwrecked, if you like. They're abandoned, marooned, although there is no storm and there is no island and there's no magician, but there's this invisible force. So uh, many of the same things happen. And then, of course, it's also... Um, about, I suppose, a fairly refined society that, um, that, that becomes less and less refined, that degrades as the thing goes on, which is also a bit similar to my first opera. So in some ways, it is rather kind of my territory, actually, in, in some ways, than before. How, have, had you, when was your first encounter with the Boonwell film? Oh, I would have been in my early, very early teens, um, if that. I mean, the BBC screened a big season of Buñuel films and um, my my mother being a historian of art and surrealism in particular, um, it, this was the sort of normal thing for me to watch when I was 13. But, <laughs> so, I know it seems, but to me it just seemed normal. And, um, and I watched, I, I, most of them I remember quite clearly seeing these films, Phantom of Liberty and um, the discreet charm of the bourgeoisie, and this one, and actually, this one probably would have, I imagine, puzzled me a bit more. I mean, it's in black and white, and it's a rather sober film a lot of the way through, whereas the others are, are very funny, actually. There is humour in the film. Oh, oh, yes. No, I just mean to a 13-year-old, I, I would have, you know, it's, it's, it, the humour is very dry. It's, it's very, very dry. And the, the, the opera, I, I think I would say, um, it, it's much amplified, the humour and, and the slapstick and various other aspects are, mu are probably more, um, more colourful, in the, literally, in the opera than they are in the film, in a way. It's rather underplayed, the film. But, you know, the discreet charm of the bourgeoisie and, and Phantom of Liberty are almost like Monty Python in places. Whereas this one is it's more of a dry joke. But the idea of it just stayed with me. And actually, I think we wanted to do this before The Tempest, if I remember rightly. That was the original plan. So this is going right back into the 20th century. Um, <laughs> so, Tom Cairns, you uh, also knew this film from an early time on, or when did you become? I, I with did, it? but like many things in life, it had sort of drifted somewhere. And when it was mentioned, I I slowly put it together in my brain, and then obviously I watched it, and it all came back. So I, I did know it. Yeah, I went to art school originally, so it was de rigueur to watch Bunuel, Fellini, you know, Pasolini, the whole list of great auteurs. How did the two of you meet? I, I um, banged his door down because I wanted him to direct The Tempest and we'd never met and he thought, who is this person? And, and, but I talked you into it, I think. I bullied you. No? Is that right? Well, it wasn't quite like that. <laughs> but, <laughs> but I think uh, that was how uh, it happened. Yeah, yeah, yes. yeah you, 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 Tom invited me to, to join him, as it were. <laughs> and I'd, I'd sort of... I, I work across a few genres, theatre and a bit of film and TV and opera, and I'd sort of, at that point, 
sort of thought maybe of all of those things I, I had done enough opera not that I'd done that much but I thought maybe that was enough and, and Tom started it all up again so you you talked to each other about the Tempest but at the same time you were thinking about, about I, this I project think, even I, then. I think there were copyright problems yes. uh, with the film and yeah. then we shouldn't go into that we won't go into that <laughs> and it, and, and, well in fact it was rather like the film in that there actually weren't copyright problems but you know there was actually no reason I won't go into it, but I mean, as it turned out, <laughs> years later, I could have just gone ahead. Right. Um, having Shakespeare is less uh, Shakespeare, demanding of when it comes and to copyright. By this point, there was this firm date in the Covent Garden diary, and I thought, right. oh, I've really got to... And, you know, The Tempest just sort of um, jumped in there ahead, got in there ahead. And then that was 2004, and now here we are. Yeah, exactly. However many years later. <clears throat> so, but this um, film, for those of you who haven't seen the film, it's an incredibly complicated ensemble collection of dinner guests uh, and in fact in the opera you you've simplified it slightly by eliminating a few of the characters i think in the film there must be more than 20 yes whereas in the opera there are 15 principal characters yes um which in in itself is probably the largest uh, collection of of principals in any opera that i know of so how do you i mean that's an incredible challenge you, you set out for yourselves both of you in terms of being able to create a new opera and a, a theatrical context for it with so many different characters that you have to keep in play well we whittled it down we actually combined some of the other characters but it, it to the, the actually the smallest number that you could have to make the thing function the conversations and the arguments and the different um uh, archetypes that the, the People, two people had to have children, you know, there was a married couple, there were things like this. But then, the, 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 for me, it was um, very enjoyable to have this kind of merry-go-round of the different characters uh, with each other. Of course, they're tricky to stage because in, in, in the film, you can simply cut away from a character who's not involved in a scene. But in, in, in the opera, they're going to be there all the time. So Tom came up with this brilliant solution of the revolve, which I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I, there, there was a whole problem, obviously, because you're watching an opera in wide shot the whole time. So it's with that many people on stage. If you've got a, you know, a soprano singing an aria, you know where to look. You know where the focus is for you to pay attention and to be involved. But we, to be honest, we didn't think of this, or I didn't, when we were coming up with what to do and when I think back now I think how naive I certainly was about it because we never once said I mean we used to think there's a lot of people in this but we never once said but how is this actually going to work as an opera how are you going to have all these people on stage that never leave the stage for the whole evening it a that's a pretty unique thing for anything let alone an opera and I'll tell you stories later about the curtain call and how do you do the curtain call when there's no lead singer. It's, it's an ensemble of thoroughbreds of great, great singers all having equal weight on stage. So I do think back to him and I think when we sat in that room for 10 days working out the first draft of how we might approach this thing, I, I certainly was quite naive and didn't quite realise the, the scale of the task in terms of um, those things I've talked about, like focus and how do you manage that many people and how do you find the focus for them. Maybe you could explain, since Tom Addis, you already started doing that, uh, who are the various characters? So just to 
In, Their in the, names, you mean? Well, I mean, the different types of people who are in this party. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Well, this I'll is the party after, after, after yeah. the opera. Yeah. We'll, we'll okay. do them together because to. one could forget. There's a young, beautiful couple, who you'll hear later, actually, singing, right. um, who, shall I say no. what happens to them? <laughs> well, no? we'll, well, we'll <laughs> why don't we save that for... <laughs> yeah, I won't give the game away, but they... Uh, a certain thing happens to them. Um... <laughs> That was embarrassing, sorry. Uh, there's a, a rather wonderful doctor figure who tries for most of the evening to take control of things and be rational and be, be very straightforward about how this might be solved. And of course, he's up against a force greater than him. There's the host and hostess who are rather wonderful. And actually, for the whole evening, the hostess had planned a rather eccentric evening. It wasn't just a dinner. She wanted to be sort of, to use that overused word, surrealist in nature. And she has brought sheep into the house and a bear. And she, at the beginning, I don't think it's too much to give this away. When the food arrives, she has arranged that the servant who carries the food will drop it and it crashes and goes everywhere. And she, she has all these wonderful plans for the evening. So she's very interesting. And there, and there, are, there are three live sheep in the show. Yes, the, the opera opens with the sheep being delivered to the house um, to these wonderful bells. Who else, Tom? Who well, else these things are... Uh, so they are aristocrats uh, who are hosting this reception after the opera that they've all just been to see. So you have the star of the opera, uh, Leticia, who is a professional soprano who's just sung her Lucia. You have the conductor of that performance that they've all just seen, Senor Rock and his wife, uh, Blanca, who is a concert pianist who plays later in the, uh, you'll hear, a, a piece composed by someone called Paradisi. And your, your alter ego. My alter ego, that's who I am in the world of the opera. Um, being, my name in Spanish actually means uh, Hades, so Paradisi and Hades, we, we both appear. Um, <laughs> so uh, we both appear. Um, and then you have uh, an explorer called Raul, who lives in the United States and is a bit of a sort of cad. And he's, he's rather fast and very, he's brilliant, high tenor, and um, Freddie Antoon. You have the youngest colonel in the army. Uh, and, uh, and he's having an affair with the hostess, the lady behind him. They're, they're all very... And you have Leonora, who's an older a woman who's ill, and she's actually under the care of the doctor who, uh, as the thing goes on, he I find him rather poignant because th there is you know, logic to what's happening to them, but he, he starts to say things like, I must organize a cleaning rotor. Uh, the point is, the door is absolutely wide open. They could all just wa walk through it rather than be there weeks later saying, I'm going to organize a cleaning rotor. Um, none of it is logical. But in the film, these are, to me, absolutely three-dimensional characters. I can picture their homes and exactly what, what their life. Oh, there's also two very important I've left out. The uh, Duchess of Avila, Sylvia, who mm. is going to, you'll see, sing Sally Matthews, who's very, very elegant. She's actually a young a widow uh, who goes to the party with her brother and it's all slightly off color. The, the sort of, there's an unhealthy relationship in some form between the two of them. He's very, he's very um, fastidious and a bit effeminate and keeps taking these little pills and things. That's he's because he's got 
As he says, my ulcerations. Ulcerations. He's got but stomach he, he's issues. probably addicted to it. Anyway, he's he's a sort of complicated, difficult character, and he obviously has a terrible time in the house as the weeks wear on. <laughs> so it's it's quite a, a menagerie of. It's uh, a menagerie, but the, the, what excited me actually is that it's not just about one or two characters and their story. It's a collective experience of very real people, and you start to realise that what's what it's about is all of them, and then if I dare say all of. Us, you know, as it as it widens, it changes at the end. So it's rather he, he Brinwell plays a, a game on two two levels. You know, you do get drawn into what they're doing, but that the whole point is that there's something completely outside them, which is a separate part of the story, perhaps um, personified in the music by. Uh, well, we should we should oh. he, we should hear some music. <laughs> so having said that. Uh, so the first piece that we're going to hear is called Variations for Blanca, which is, which is the, the work of the fictional composer uh, Paradisi. Paradisi. And it appears early on in the action before things start to deteriorate. Yes, the um, situation is that everyone's had dinner. It's gone a little bit wrong because that crashing of the food didn't go down well at all with the rest of the guests. So Lucia and her husband, Nobile, are a little bit anxious, but they all go through from the dining room into the salon. The next part of the evening will be this piano solo, which they all dutifully listen to, and then the action develops out of this eventually. And things go downhill from there. In the opera, you hear various conversations during this music, but uh, it's also a concert piece. Right. Um, so, so please welcome uh, Met assistant conductor and pianist uh, Dimitri Dover, who will be playing uh, variations for Blanca.
It's beautiful. Yes. Tell us about some of the um, extraordinary instruments that you have included. I mean, piano is obviously on the more conventional side of things, but you have some very unusual instruments from the owned uh, Martineau uh, to miniature tiny little violins, all kinds of tricks and things. <laughs> Well, yes. It's basically a regular orchestra, but with several, uh, I suppose, extensions. I mean, by far the most glamorous and, uh, I suppose, aristocratic in my mind is, is the Leon Martineau, an extremely special, uh, rare and wonderful instrument in many ways. Tell, can you describe I will, what, it, what it, that I'm does? I'm going to get this wrong, but, but uh, well, it's an electronic uh, sound. Uh, it's one of the earliest electronic instruments. Indeed, it's developed, you know, I believe... Um, and it has a very wide range, wider really than the piano even. You can play it two ways, either on a keyboard or on a, a sort of a thread, which one can run one's finger along on a ring, which of course means that you can create a continuous glissando. And it has many different voices in different colours, from very intensely human and expressive or violin-like to things that are other, perhaps otherworldly or even, I like to say, in a way, supernatural because in some ways an electronic sound, although you know, it is natural, but in, in some ways it's, it, it has the same relation. If you think of the orchestra as a, as, as a human uh, world, as a human universe, as I do rather, I mean, you know, the oboes mean one thing to us and the clarinets, then an electronic instrument is like a superhuman or supernatural. I mean, it's probably a strange way of thinking, but that's how it feels to me. And so this comes to almost stand for the voice or the mind of, of the exterminating angel, which, of course, the whole point is there is no exterminating angel, but whatever it is, is making them stay in the house. So there's, some, there's something that's preventing something, them from, from leaving. Whatever that thing is, uh, you can hear. It's almost as though you can hear it in the in the Aunt Martineau, for example. Early in the piece, um, if someone they should just be going home, but they say something like, "Oh, I think I might just stay another five minutes and have another cup of coffee." You might hear this sound in the background, as if to say, "This was me." <laughs> <laughs> and of course, there's also one other thing. There's a guitar solo a, a, a number in, in the film, one of his great dream sequences, I think, a sort of surrealist dream sequence. We've used um, a Buñuel poem, actually, from another source and have it accompanied with a guitar solo, uh, which is a, it, it's very... and actually combined with the Aunt Martineau, which I think probably is the first time those two things have met. Um, rather like the, the, the um, sewing machine and, and, and the uh, iron or whatever it was that Duchamp combines to, as a classic surrealist image. It has, it has been used, I know, by, by Messiaen in some of his pieces. Archetypally, the great, by far the greatest writing, I think, for me, for On Martineau. And, but he uses it in a, uh, as an ecstatic way of a religious or, or you know, for love music, and, and incredibly effectively. I've sort of, in my mind, reclaiming it for, for spookiness and, and, and as well as that, and, and otherworldliness. It has a sort of theremin-like quality. It's, it's, it's a close relation, I suppose, right. even a son or daughter of the same, I suppose. And what about these tiny little miniature violins that the orchestra plays in the first half? Well, a friend who had a young child, very small child, had this 30-second-sized violin, this minute thing, and I picked it up and started to play it, and it, it really... It feels as though there are tiny people in the skirting board who are... It's the most sort of startling sound. You have to use the tiny bow as well. It's no use using a normal tiny. So at one point, it is, it's the point where somehow things have really got... Reality has, has, has emphatically left them behind. 
right towards the end, end of Act Three, just before one of the final exterior things, scenes, and I think 16 or however many people in the violins pick up these tiny things, and you, this little, I won't give it away. How, how, do they, uh, how do they do? They're playing fantastic. Once they got used to the idea, they, 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 I think they're really enjoying <laughs> it. Yes. Okay, excellent. And what is the, uh, the lion's roar? Oh, that's, a, that's an old um, percussion instrument. That's a, it's a sort of waxed uh, bit of string, that, a rope that you pull. It makes a rude sort of roaring sound. I think probably I use it when the bear roars, yes. yes. And there's a door which slams in the percussion, which is just a door. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. It's always, it's always good to have one. So when you started working on this piece, uh, and this is really for both of you, um, I know t traditionally the libretto is written first and then the music is written afterwards. I mean, normally that's where it happens. How, how does that work in terms of your relationship as, as collaborators? How did we do this? Yeah. Um, well, it, it started with, as I think I said, Tom and I sitting in a room for 10 days trying to find some sort of shape to it and c trying to work out how to condense it in some way so that an opera could be written from from the movie, basically. Uh, and once we'd done that and kind of... I literally wrote... I can't tell you how much down about our conversations. And then I went back to... You were in Los Angeles then, weren't you? And I went back to London and yeah. did the first of the very first, first drafts just to get something on paper. And I think at that point... Well, I know at that point, I don't know if I should say it, we were thinking of a different a slightly more condensed piece with no interval and this and that. There were all yes. sorts of yes. things we talked about. And so that first draft was essentially what we ended up doing, but it was tighter in terms of the amount of information we were giving out. And then Tom rightly thought it needed to be expanded from that. Yes. And then the process continued many, many drafts later yes. with Tom contributing a great deal back into the... Um, the thing itself, and I think that's how it worked yeah. out, isn't it? Do you start composing though until no. until the libretto was absolutely locked? Uh, no, I, I would say I started composing at about the sixth draft of a libretto, yeah. and yeah. Um, it was almost as though it, it was some watching something that was you know, a certain size, then having to eat a lot and swallow a lot, and it expanded like that, and then it sort of suddenly went back like this, but it absorbed these things. And um, acquired itself an interval. Uh, yes, it, it did. And, it and we were then delighted yeah. because yes. we could suddenly jump forward a yes, number of three weeks, weeks and it's a, without defining how far yeah. we'd gone. But after the interval, you see a very different, very different. image to the one you've got yeah, used to because right. quite a lot of time has passed. So we were able to actually use a film technique and just do a great big cut in terms of of time. But, you know, the music did that as well. I mean, there was, a, there was probably a six-hour opera, the first draft that I did, and then I looked at it, I think this is six hours long. So <laughs> a lot of things. Um, and there were also, what you, to have um, moments in the opera where there are moments of uh, like an aria or duet, which you need a certain kind of uh, words. It's not that useful to have just dry dialogue for a moment like that. So I borrowed a couple of Bunuel poems, and also two uh, other sources, poems from, uh, um, one, one is Bialik, uh, Hebrew poet, Over the Sea, and the other one is a big piece from the 1100s, um, Yehuda ben 
um, Alevi, who uh, Zion do asked of my piece. It's a very famous poem, um, and those are in it as well. So just to kind of, it's somehow the moment when someone has to stand and just give a, a if you like, a, a more vertical kind of time rather than the horizontal time of people saying dialogue. So, uh, and that's that's the libretto. And when I know that, um, I know you and I have talked about this uh, in the past about the tempest. Where where did you start composing? I mean, which That's part of the libretto did you tackle? Did you, did you start from the oh, beginning? I actually or? think I started with that yeah, piano you did, piece. You did, you yes. did. And because it has... A, that's, the variations is on a, actually an old Ladino song. Um, la Vaba, La Blanca, Nina. Blanca's the character who plays it. Um, and, uh, I wrote, and I suppose I must have then put some dialogue on top of that. It's hard to remember, but I didn't start at the beginning. It doesn't really almost have a beginning. Well, this piece does have a beginning. I knew it would start with bells, but it took me a very long time to figure out exactly what the bells would play. And then I, rem- you, and I remember you saying to me, Tom, several times way early on that you would literally maybe this is not quite right, but it was something like this, because this, we've been doing this for eight years, um, something about post-its, or you'd have a fragment oh, yes. of a phrase and you'd just write it down and stick yeah. it on a wall. Literally. And one of those things where yes. you slowly yes. pull all those things into the yes. bigger picture. It looked like the end of that film, A Beautiful Mind, where he's sort of covered, the wall's <laughs> covered with map. And that's literally, I'd stuck them things to the wall and some things would stay there for literally years. And then suddenly I'd look up and it would, the, the moment would come. Be, You're on, you know, come <laughs> now. And some of them, I'm afraid, the opera finished this and they just they turned yellow and they had to go in the bin. You know. It's funny you mentioned A Beautiful Mind. I'm, I'm curious, when you're composing, are you seeing the music, the notes, as well as hearing them in your mind? Um, I think you... It's like an imaginary building that exists in your mind, then you have to make it a real building, I suppose. I I hear them more than see... I I hear the characters more than see them, which is very, very very exciting for me to see them in costume and actually doing things and walking up and down the stage. That's an always extraordinary moment. It's like the reality. Can you talk a little bit more about what what actually is the creative process for you in terms of how, how do you compose? Every time it was different, and this this, this opera was the first time that I say I, I wrote a huge, very sprawling draft just to somehow be able to feel that this story does have an underlying musical river in it that kind of flows all the way through. But I had to know that it was there before I could really, you know, well, because you could run into an obstacle and think, oh, there's no music here. This is, um, you know, um, and then I actually started again at the beginning and almost. You know, seventy percent of that. I suppose it got. I say thrown away. It's more that it got. Um, that was like a big block of, you know, um, um, marble or whatever. And this is, I chipped away. And I did keep the bit in the middle, not the other stuff. <laughs> are you Are you thinking about the orchestration as you were composing yes. at all times? Yes, in, in in a way, particularly something like the or the old Martino, because it was almost a character in its own right, and I say almost, it is a character. So, um, I'd write this is on the on the online. And how how has the uh, piece evolved? We're the third opera house to uh, we're a co-commissioner, of course, which we're very proud of. But we're the third in line. It was performed first in Salzburg, as I mentioned earlier, and then and then in London. Have you been? How have you been? tinkering with the piece, uh, both of you, in terms of from the original staging to the time it now arrives at the Met? Um, 
Well, it's, it's an, you don't often get the chance with a new piece to do it again and again and again in op opera houses at this level, um, and generally even. Um, so that's been rather wonderful. I would say essentially the piece is the same as it's always been, but it's certainly been clarified by the time we got to England. Um, it's been expanded because the house in Salzburg was a little bit smaller. Um, now we've come to the Metropolitan Opera. I mean, I could go into a million details, but broadly speaking, for instance, we've customized some of the opening and closing ideas for the Met itself using some of the chandeliers in the Metropolitan yes. Opera. And there've been all sorts of uh, responses. Yes. We've made all sorts of responses to the place we were in and the situation. Yes. But, but mainly what has been thrilling for me, and I'm sure you as well, Tom, is when the singers, uh, who were understandably quite, um, you know, they, they were stressed by seeing this music and the scale of the piece and the amount of time we had to do it and all of that, and seeing them not only do it for the first time wonderfully, but but in the way they have grown as an ensemble, it's to, to someone like us who's been watching that process, it's been thrilling really at the, the confidence of how they, they're like a kind of acting company who've been around for 30 years mm. or something. It's, yeah. it's thrilling really. Things like the opening, the, the, when they first walk on stage, it's a 15 part uh, vocal ensemble, very actually very complex, where they all just so say enchanted in each other's names. And it, it really is a piece of, the martial art to get them all to come in at the right moment and say the, sing the line and, and it should all sort of become this effortless tapestry and I mean it took a week for us to put oh. that anywhere near the stage the first time it really, and now they, really, they come in they, they do exactly yeah. what they because um, because um, I had written Enchanted I'm, I'm senior so and so Enchanted, Enchanted. And they, they all said hello to each other and then Tom wrote this thing that was I mean, you've never. Well, you'll hear it, I hope. But it's it's a very wonderfully complex response to people just saying hello to each other. It's sort of well, they are, they're enchanted. They're under yeah. a spell. And the one thing I did add, which is the first, I'm very excited to hear it, is that at the end of the piece, as this whole the, the the thing starts to the process happens again. I mean, without giving it too much away. But and then the way to kind of make clear what was happening. There's a moment in Act One where you suddenly, out of the blue, hear these uh, drums, very repetitive drumming, which uh, I took from a, a real-life festival in Spain, massed drums, and everybody of the village drums the same rhythm for the whole day. I think it's an Easter ritual. And it was Buñuel's town where he came from, Calanda. And uh, I suddenly realized that uh, they had, the drums had to come back at the very, very, very end, just to sort of, that, that, and that, we haven't had that before, so I've put them in. The, um, well, of course, you know, we're, we're very happy to be uh, third in line so that you have a chance to use things and, and develop things and, yes. and add things to, to the work. Before we hear the next uh, musical selection, I thought, Tom Cairns, you might talk a little bit more about the physical production because there's a very, there's an, a very impressive arch that's part of the production. And you worked very closely with uh, Hildegard Beckler, who's the designer of the scenery and the costumes. and. There's projection, there's uh, interesting lighting. Can you talk a little bit about, about the physical production? Absolutely. You mentioned um, the turntable, of course. Yeah, I'll try and be brief, but um, <clears throat> we were in a unique situation in many ways. One of them was that at least I knew what the libretto was going to be and what the piece should be. But of course, we didn't have any music. And in, in a situation like that, you have to work, uh, uh, a situation like opera and, and bigger productions, you have to 
have conceived the piece and come up with a concept way ahead of the time it would be in, it would be performed. In this case, it was about two years before we were doing our first performance. The the whole concept of the piece and the the all the ideas, the visual ideas, had to be in place. And we were well aware of one thing, which is a thing I mentioned earlier about this thing about how to focus things for the audience. In other words, where should they look at what point? I mean, if you imagine how big the Met stage is, how wonderfully wide and huge and, and um, you know, commanding it is, we needed to, for, for these large theatres, work on something visually that could help people know that. So we came up with two things at once. Hildegard Beckler's style, if you like, mostly, is to sort of base her work on a sort of realism, but at the same time quite simplified. So she she takes elements of reality, but she simplifies them down into, in this case, in, you know, obviously there's, there's a, a space into another room. Um, so if you're in the dining room and you go into the salon, you sit down and listen to the piano, you've got to go back through the dining room and out through the house to leave. Um, and around most doors, um, there's an, arc, an architrave, as we call it in England, and I hope it's the same word. In other words, the moulding around a door, and that, that's what defines that space, uh, with or without doors. And so that became the central element of the set design, which is a very, very large wooden, it's almost like a, an arch that's been inspired from the moulding around a door. So in other words, there's a sort of sense of reality with this thing. It's in this beautiful dark wood as well. So you feel you know what you're looking at, but actually you're not looking at a real thing. You're looking at something that's been developed out of something that was real, this architraving. And then there are various other walls, one which can project behind it beautiful curtains blowing in the wind or something rather frightening out through the window. Um, and so that there are elements of architecture that when they're all combined will make you feel like you're really in a room but can somehow float away, literally, and, and make the room seem a much more frightening thing. And to just wrap up on this, what we, we do exactly that. So this arch that would normally have a fixed position in a room um, has the capability of moving on its own very slowly and rather frighteningly into all sorts of positions. And the way we stage the opera is that as long as we're on this side of that arch, wherever it is on the stage, the story is still being told that they can't go through it. So it sort of heightens the sense of going into another room. It makes it an even more ominous situation because of this piece of architecture. And the only other thing we do is we have a, a turntable, a slow revolve that can counter the movements of this arch. And what both those things do together, I hope, is that they bring a, a small scene into focus. So they're, they're moving all the time, though the audience aren't aware of it. Sometimes they are, but mostly they aren't. So they're moving at an incredibly slow speed. And while one scene is happening, another one is on its way around to you so that it's, it's not happening way up at the back there or you're not knowing where to look. The moment someone sings, you think, of course, that's where they should be. I can see them. So it's a very sophisticated 
piece of machinery, this arch thing, as is a turntable. And Hildegard and I worked through the opera for literally years to work out how we'd make the piece move and flow and, and stay in focus for everyone. And there are um, lots of other production elements, including real fire, uh, some plumbing, water. Absolutely. A, disem a disembodied, mysterious hand that creeps across the set. That's right. There's, there's a section where they start to hallucinate and all sorts of things happen. I won't t go into all of that. But And, and then the things like the, those sheep that were delivered at the beginning of the, the piece when, when uh, Lucia imagined she was going to have an entertainment using live sheep, which was promptly cancelled, obviously. Um, they do make an appearance later in the opera. And in fact, I, I think I can say, um, they manage to get hold of them and get them into the room and they cut them up and eat them. They build a fire. Using and, a cello. And they, they chop up wood and furniture and they cook the sheep and eat them. Uh, but before we that... Don't, we, don't, we don't actually do that to the real sheep. No. <laughs> yes, we do. Yes, we do. Uh, and before that, they, they need water as well. So, of course, they start to dig into the pipes of the house to try and get water. So, literally, they're doing that at one point and there's a water jet right up in the air that they all grab water from so it becomes quite it becomes quite um, pagan almost how they react to these basic things so, that we all need so now so now we're going to hear some more music there's a great uh, romantic line in, in the opera which are this pair of young lovers Beatrice and Eduardo and they um, they are recently engaged they're madly in love and they're also doomed Please welcome uh, soprano Sophie Beaven and tenor David Portillo, once again accompanied by Dimitri Dover, uh, who will be singing duets from The Exterminating Angel.
was uh, extraordinary. <laughs> so we actually have one more musical performance to offer you, which is the, uh, um, the Act Three aria, Versus Macabre, which is sung by the soprano Sally Matthews, who plays the role of Sylvia, who uh, at the point in the opera where she, when she sings this is completely unhinged and uh, towards the end of the opera, and is singing the song while rocking what she thinks is her son in her arms, which is actually a dead sheep. Right. Yes, <laughs> but in, in the opera, you, you, she hears his voice. He good hears his good voice. night, Mama, at the end. In fact, in the film, you, this he's happens her, as well. her boy is outside trying to yes. get in through this invisible force field, but yes. he's in, unable to do so. That's right. So now, please welcome uh, Sally Matthews, accompanied by Dimitri Dover. Of course, you haven't heard Tom Addis's score until you hear it fully orchestrated at the Met, and uh, uh, that's that's what we hope you will be joining us for when our opera opens on the 26th and subsequent performances. Thank you both so much. I hope that you all have had a chance to get a taste of what this wonderful opera is going to be like, and thank you so much.
That was composer Thomas Addis and librettist and stage director Tom Cairns talking about their new opera, The Exterminating Angel. The discussion was hosted by Metropolitan Opera General Manager Peter Galb and presented as part of Works and Process at the Guggenheim. The Exterminating Angel is a co-commission and co-production of the Metropolitan Opera, Royal Opera House Covent Garden, Royal Danish Theatre, and Salzburg Festival, performed by arrangement with Faber Music Limited London. Following its American premiere on October 26th, The Exterminating Angel will be on stage at the Met through November 21st. The Saturday matinee on November 18th can be seen in theatres around the world live in HD. Check your local listings or visit metopera.org for more information. I'm Naomi Baratera, and thanks for listening to the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast.